Um, Today we're going to get right into the Word of God here in uh, Daniel 2, starting at verse 31, back into Daniel, and we're going to read uh, five verses from 31 to 35. So if you have your Bibles ready, those of you who are at home, please prepare yourself and your heart for the Word of God. This is Daniel 2, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, 37 days. 37 days, that's how many days we have left until the presidential election, November 3rd. Uh, We have 37 days left until that day, but it's not just a presidential seat, but it's 35 Senate seats. It's also 435 House seats, it's 11 governorships, uh, 10 attorney generals, 7 secretary of state positions, and 28 court seats uh, will be determined very, very soon. Less than 40 days, a lot of this uh, will take place. And for a nation that's been through a lot in 2020, a plague, a recession, social division, and a lot went on this year, Um, on top of all of that, it's also a presidential election season. And so the question I want to talk about today is, what as a Christian, as Christians in the kingdom of God, what is our place in trying to understand and interpret the election that's coming up? Um... Politics is controversial, not supposed to talk about it, but you know, we are going to talk about it, and we have to talk about it today. What is our position as kingdom citizens um, in this world? Today, we come to Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Last week, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar put out this challenge to all the wise men and the sages of Babylon to come and not only interpret the dream that he had, but to tell him what the dream was. And no one dared to stand up to such a foolish challenge and to come and to tell the king what his dream was or to interpret it. And then stood up Daniel to the challenge. And today we want to take a look at the dream and we're going to take a look at the interpretation that Daniel offered to King Nebuchadnezzar. And in doing so, we're going to see what our place is in the presidential election. We're going to see how we're supposed to react in heart and mind and in our conversations to what's going on in this world. And so in today's sermon, we're going to look at the passing kingdoms of this world. We're going to look at the passing kingdoms of this world. We're going to look at the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to see how how the everlasting kingdom affects the way that we as kingdom citizens should live in a passing kingdom. So again, we're going to look at the passing kingdoms of this world, we're going to look at the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ, and we're going to see how that everlasting kingdom changes us so that we can live here. Let's pray together. Father, um, as we come to you now before this mighty word, this word that was given to us not from human hands, but from above, 
I pray open our hearts and our minds. We're about to enter into a season where there's going to be a lot of messaging, not only to our brains, but our hearts about how to feel and what to think. I pray that the word of God would hold primacy in the hearts of your children, that we would maintain our kingdom citizenship in a passing kingdom. And so, Father, won't you speak to us here at Mount Sinai so that we can receive the word that will maintain our identity in Babylon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we first look at the passing kingdoms of this world. Um, I just want to get right into this dream and its interpretation, and I want to read to you again verse 31 to 33 one more time, and it says this, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar exactly what his dream was. When nobody else in Babylon dared to even try this, he tells him exactly what he saw, and what he saw was a statue. And the statue had five different materials that made up five different levels of this statue, and the head of gold was Babylon. And then from there there on, you have all these different materials making up the different levels of this statue. And Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar that this dream is about all the kingdoms that will come after him. Now, I don't want to speak too strongly about interpreting each one of these kingdoms, but it is very hard to ignore the accuracy of this interpretation. Very difficult to ignore the historical accuracy of this interpretation because when you look at the history of the kingdoms that came after Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, it's right on point. And so I don't want to speak too strongly, but it's really hard to avoid the actual political shifts and how congruent they are to the actual interpretation. In fact, it's so accurate that a lot of scholars have come after and said, this couldn't have possibly been written in the time of Babylon. There's no way that somebody could have actually uh, predicted all these kingdoms, especially with the accuracy that's in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 8, as you'll see very soon. And so they say, ah, somebody added this after. It's very hard to argue um, in the integrity of the whole book. And um, not only is it really hard to argue in an academic sense to just rip this out and say that somebody came in after and added it, but it's also missing the entire point of the interpretation. The very point of this interpretation is that no man would have been able to predict this. That no person, human being, would have been able to do this. That's the entire point. In fact, last week, Pastor Yosef brought us the word in which one of the people uh, says that no man is going to be able to do this for you. King Nebuchadnezzar, no one. That's the very point, that only God is able to give this interpretation. And here it is. He says that there are these five kingdoms that were represented in this statue. The head of gold is Babylon, is you, O king. And then after that, it says that the silver level of the statue, and if you look at uh, the uh, historical data, the, the history of the kingdoms in the ancient Near East, you see that the silver most likely represents Persia. The Persian kingdom, which comes after with King Cyrus coming in to take over the lands that King Nebuchadnezzar used to rule as this mighty king. And then King Cyrus is going to come with an, an army that no one has ever seen an army like this. 
No one could have even imagined that there could be an army this big, and King Cyrus would assemble an army that would crush Nebuchadnezzar. Not only that, you see the two arms of the silver uh, part of the, the statue, there were two arms of this Persian kingdom. There were the Persians and the Medes, and they would come after that. The next part of the statue after Persia is the bronze kingdom, and the bronze kingdom refers to Greece. Most likely it refers to Greece here. And the Greek kingdom, which uh, the empire lasted almost 200 years. And if you go to Daniel 8, there's a verse that I want to read you. Two verses I want to read you in Daniel 8. Daniel 8, um, Daniel talks about Greece and the coming king of Greece who would be triumphant. And Daniel talks about uh, a kingdom that uh, would be spread out. Let me read you from Daniel 8. Verses 21 and 22, this is what Daniel says. He says, and the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in the place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. He's talking about Greece and the king of Greece who is to come. And I don't know if you remember from maybe you learned it in middle school, maybe you learned it in high school when you learned European history and you learned that Alexander the Great comes as his mighty conqueror, and Alexander the Great comes and conquers, but he never had a successor, someone who could be as great as he was, even though he was only in his 20s, but his kingdom would be divided among his four generals. And so you have the Ptolemaic kingdom, you have the Seleucid kingdom, you have the Pergamonian kingdom, and you have the Macedonian kingdom. I don't know if you remember from your classes, but Daniel says there's coming a king of Greece who will have a mighty horn of power, but it will be divided into four kingdoms. And here in the bronze portion of the statue, he's talking about the Greek kingdom that is to come. Now you understand why scholars say somebody must have added these things afterwards. It's portrayed with incredible accuracy. And then after that is the iron kingdom, the strongest of all the metals inside of this statue. And this strong, mighty nation would be the Roman Empire. No empire um, like it. Before, the strongest of all. Let me read you verse 40. It says, There shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. There would be a crushing nation, and the Roman Empire ruled more than 300 years, and there was everybody who lived in the Roman Empire could not believe that the Roman Empire would ever end. They called it the eternal city. All roads led to Rome, and they thought it was the eternal city because what nation could possibly defeat Rome, and what nation, what, what power could be greater than Rome? So they called it, this is the eternal city. Well, it wasn't exactly eternal, but it was the strongest of all the nations. There was the iron portion of uh, the statue. And then once you get to the feet, um, this is probably a kingdom we haven't seen yet. Because ever since Rome, we have not seen a worldwide kingdom like that. And uh, we probably don't know exactly what this last kingdom is. This is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And Daniel portrays it back to Nebuchadnezzar with incredible accuracy. Now the question is, what are we supposed to do with this interpretation? What's the usefulness for us? Now, the mistake would be to try to interpret what the next kingdom is, and a lot of people have done that, spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the feet of clay are, what's the next kingdom that is to come. But brothers and sisters, if that's what we become obsessed with, 
And you need to learn this as we continue through Daniel and eventually in the future, we're going to go through Revelation. One of the things that's very, very important when it comes to biblical interpretation, one of the keys to biblical interpretation is to ask, what relevance did it have for the people who received the passage in that time? What relevance and significance did it have for the people who got the message for the first time? That's a very, very important interpretive key that we must learn. So the question is, for the exiles who were in Babylon who received the book of uh, Daniel, what significance did it have for them? Why was that given by God to those people? Now, it wasn't to show them the coming kingdoms, and they were supposed to interpret this and figure out which nation was going to rule. What use would that have been for them? There wasn't enough information at that time for them to, to do that. But the key here is this, that even though this was a dream and a vision given to Nebuchadnezzar, this vision is eventually given to the exiles of Babylon to show them a vision of hope. A vision of hope in the midst of this uh, fiery kingdom that they were living in. Because what he shows them in this vision is that a stone is cut out from not human hands, from eternal hands, and that all of these kingdoms, as impressive and um, as intimidating as this statue looks, this statue will be absolutely obliterated by this stone. And it's supposed to give the people who are living in exile hope that even though their homes were taken away, even though Nebuchadnezzar looks like an invincible king and, and Babylon seems like a terrible, fiery, eternal city, that God was behind it and that all these kingdoms would be destroyed and that they were not supposed to despair because every kingdom is set up by God and every kingdom would be struck down by God eventually. That was the message that they were supposed to receive and they were supposed to hear, do not despair. No kingdom is eternal, and your eternal king of kings is sovereign over them, and he will make sure that every king that rises and every kingdom that rises will also fall. You see, Nebuchadnezzar here is this mighty, powerful, invincible king, but he's relegated to being a spectator to this vision. He can't help it. He keeps having this dream, and he keeps feeling so helpless and scared among all that's happening, and he's just relegated as a spectator and helpless to this dream, and it's showing that God is in control, and Nebuchadnezzar is merely a servant here. And brothers and sisters, we need to hear that message. God says, I am behind all of it. I am the sovereign king of kings. Do not tremble before Nebuchadnezzar. And do not tremble before all these other nations that are about to come. When King Cyrus comes, it's going to be a scary moment for everyone. But God is saying, do not fear. When Alexander the Great comes, it's going to be crazy just how powerful and mighty and successful he is. He's saying, do not tremble before Alexander the Great. As Caesar comes in with the Roman Empire, people are going to say there's no nation that can ever destroy this nation. Now, what's left of every one of these nations? Ruins. If you go on vacation today to uh, Europe, what do you see? You see so many uh, attempts and so much money spent on trying to tape up the ruins of these kingdoms. Why? Because it's like dust. Like it says here, it's like chaff. You know, and it's being destroyed and it's being turned into dust. And, 
you know, when you go on vacation, you can't even see all of the things that you want to see without all the construction that's going on, right? You go to the Colosseum and there's construction and you go to the Parthenon in Athens and there's construction and you're like, man, can't they just leave it alone? I just want to take pictures without like cranes and construction site all around. No, they can't. You know why? Because it's like chaff. All the kingdoms of this world, it's like chaff. It's like dust that's always constantly being blown away because it's temporal. So they have to do construction (laughs) so that you could take your pictures on vacation because every kingdom is wasting away. And brothers and sisters, the message, do not tremble. Be still because I am God that message has to go to you this November. As we come to election season, we have to take in this message and we have to have this understanding of earthly kingdoms. You know, in election season, we can become very, very similar to the rest of the world. In fact, in 2016, during the election of 2016, the New York Times reported a spike in um, therapists who were saying that they were doing far more therapy, this uh, very intense spike in therapy sessions because of election-related stress. And if we're honest, as you spend all your time on social media and reading the news, we can equally become as scared, as agitated, as negative and combative and as nearsighted and narrow-minded with everybody else in this world. There's something very powerful about the wave of election season that can really get to us. And it's no secret that because our country has a two-party system, you're gonna get messages from both sides trying to cause insecurity in you, trying to cause fear in you through various different means. There's millions of dollars behind that to get you insecure enough to vote their way. Whether it's the Democratic Party or it's the Republican Party, you're gonna get messages from both sides. And that rush of insecurity that they want to put in your heart, we have to be aware of that as November comes near. And be still and know that he is God and King of Kings. Brothers and sisters, today we need to receive this message from God, be not afraid, right? Be not afraid. Do not tremble before Nebuchadnezzar. Do not tremble before a potential King Cyrus. Do not be scared before a potential Alexander the Great coming in and ruining things. Do not tremble before Caesar. We need to hear that and we need to keep a watchful eye on our hearts. Do not tremble, do not fear. I am the king of kings. I am the king of kings and I am watching all things. Do not be afraid because this vision, it centers around this humble stone, this humble stone that it says that it's cut out not by human hands, but the stone comes in like a meteor in this interpretation and hits this statue And from the feet all the way up to the head of gold, it crushes all of the kingdoms. And what that's supposed to show us is that Christ the rock is the one who is strong enough to destroy all of these kingdoms. And he is the one who is in control of all these things. You know, the rock hits the statue at the feet. The feet of iron. That makes sense. 
because the iron is the Roman Empire. And that's when Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. But it shouldn't. A rock should never crush iron, right? Rock doesn't crush iron. You use iron to crush rock. How can rock crush iron? But that's exactly what happens. We have a rock riding in on a donkey before the strongest of empires and is able to upend and destroy an empire of iron. God is saying to us, do not be shaken because I have a plan and through the Lord Jesus Christ, all things will be unshakable for kingdom citizens. If you are a kingdom citizen, you are the only people on earth who should be unshakable regardless of political changes. You should be unshakable because Christ is your rock. And so today the message comes out to us as we prepare for election season. My eternal people of the, citizen, uh, of the citizenry of the kingdom of God, do not be shaken. I am your God. Be still and know that I am your God. And you belong to the everlasting kingdom. You know, today... Um, I want to talk to you then about how the message of the everlasting kingdom changes us to live in a passing kingdom world. Um, And I want to get kind of practical with three ways that this should really affect us in our lives. Because it is hard. You know, it is hard. From now on until November, there's going to be so many attempts to shake you in order to get your vote. There's going to be so many attempts to shake you, and all, all these political systems are going to be appealing to your sense of fear and insecurity, and they have millions of dollars behind it to get you to be shaken, and you'll hear the Democrats telling you that if you vote the wrong way, then you're going to be contributing to making America into an unjust and racially divided country, so be afraid, and you'll hear the Republicans Say that if you vote wrongly, then you will contribute to making America this irrational and failing country. So be afraid. But God is saying, my kingdom, children, do not be shaken in your hearts. I am the king of kings. No matter who the next president is, no matter how many seats any party holds in the house, Babylon is not your king, ultimately. But the thing is, we need to be involved in Babylon. In fact, Jeremiah says, seek the peace of the city. You must be engaged in passing kingdoms, even though your heart is separated. So how do we do that? How can we be engaged in the passing kingdom? And how can we be involved in in the, uh, the political conversation and still be set apart from the political conversation in our hearts? That's the challenge for all of us, isn't it? How can we be in, living in this passing kingdom and yet have our hearts sit on the everlasting kingdom? Uh, What you see here is Daniel is engaged. You see, the conclusion to, you know, oh, we're part of the everlasting kingdom, it shouldn't make you think, that means that I'm just not going to engage at all. What do you see Daniel doing? Daniel is putting himself in the center of political conversation by being inside of the king's court and offering this interpretation to the king himself getting involved, and yet he's wholly different than anybody else in Babylon. How can we become like that? There are three things I want to say um, to help us to be engaged in such a way where we can be citizens of the everlasting kingdom but engaged in the passing kingdom. 
The everlasting kingdom, it should affect us in three ways. Number one, it should affect us at the level of the heart. It should affect us at the level of the heart and especially in regards to our fears and insecurities and anger that everybody else is going to try to incite in this election cycle. It changes our hearts when we know the ending. And that's the whole point of the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is that you know the ending and the ending is a victory in the person of Christ. So how does that affect us as we engage politically? It should give us a sense of security and it should give us a sense of hope. Always, never despairing, always, no matter what's going on. I don't know if you ever watched um, home renovation shows. But a lot of people like watching home renovation shows. And on HGTV or these various different channels, you have these home renovation shows. And at the beginning, it's always a disaster. You know, it's always a disaster when you watch these homes and the, the wallpaper is coming off and the pipes are exploding and the kitchen is a mess. And as you watch that, let me ask you, as you watch these different shows, as you see these houses coming apart, do you cringe? And do you feel terrible for the homeowners? Not really, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's bad. If it happened in your house, it would be really bad. But you don't feel that bad for them. And we all know why. Because it's a home renovation show. And you know, at the end of the show, if you wait like 16 more minutes, then they're going to have a beautiful home. And they're going to have a gorgeous home. And so, yeah, it's bad. But, you know, in your heart, you're not really despairing for them because you know exactly what's going to happen. What, what, what difference does it make that we know that there's an everlasting kingdom? You know, as we engage in the issues of this world, we should have a settled hope in our hearts that even as we mourn and even as we engage the various things that's happening, we need to have a rock-steady hope in the everlasting kingdom. You know, some of us really mourned this week because of what happened um, as a conclusion and the decision that came out on Breonna Taylor's case. Many of us mourned um, because you did not feel like justice was served. Others may be mourning very different things. You may be mourning all the, the police officers who have nothing to do with murder, who have nothing to do with injustice and yet are being shot and they haven't done anything wrong. There's a lot of things that we mourn. And as you look at international news and as you look at all these different things, there's so many things to mourn in our day. But what makes you different? Does it make a difference in your heart that you have a king of kings in an everlasting kingdom. We as kingdom citizens should mourn, but we should always remember Psalm 46, 9 to 10. Psalm 46, 9 to 10, this is what we hear about God who's involved in the politics and the actions of our day. It says in verse 9, he makes war cease and come to an end. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. You know, we see God being involved in all the things um, that's happening in this world. And we, even as we mourn these, the events 
in the news and we mourn what's happening in our country, we must mourn with hope. You know, Paul's speaking uh, to the church and he says, we must never mourn in despair. We must never mourn as if we don't have hope. We, even when we mourn, we have to mourn differently from the rest of this world. At the level of the heart, the everlasting kingdom should affect us as we engage in the events of our world. Secondly, it should also affect us not only in the heart, but at the level of identity. Uh, the everlasting kingdom has to be the center of our identity. You know, one of the things that has been happening the past decade is uh, the kind of coming of something called identity politics, which I don't know if you've ever heard of identity politics, but it's a very different kind of conversation than what politics used to be. You see, identity politics, instead of talking about the issues, um, instead of uh, arguing about issues, you're arguing more about identity. Uh, meaning it's not, the conversations are not just about what is right, but who is right. Not about what the answers to the issues are, but which group is the winning group? Which group is the right group? Identity politics, um, you know, it actually started in a good way. It was a, it was a way to help the marginalized people um, to have the rights that they needed to have. I think a big shift happened during the uh, LGBTQ conversation where that it changed from the issues to identity, where we began to talk about instead of sexual preference, we started talking about sexual identity. And with that shift, politics did not just become about who, what's right and what's wrong, but it's about which group is right. And what that meant was you needed to wholesale jump in to everything that a particular group wants. Because it's not just about the individual issues that the groups are talking about, but it's a zero-sum game where only one group can be wholly right. It's identity politics. It's been happening in our, in our world the past 10 years, and even probably before that. The question not about what's right as we talk to each other, but now it's about which race is right, which nationality is right, which social class is right, which party is right. And that makes the conversation much more personal than before. Because not only are you disagreeing with my thoughts, you're disagreeing with who I am. And that makes conversation really hard. Brothers and sisters, what difference does it make that you're a kingdom citizen? What difference does it make that you partake in the identity of the everlasting kingdom? The core of our identity has to be in the citizenship of the kingdom of God. What difference does that make as you um, engage in these conversations? That should give us a different way of engaging with people. Because you are not engaging in, this, in the same way as everyone else. We are in some ways a little bit distant in our heart because we are part of a different kingdom. I love the the moment in Joshua, you know, Joshua is about to go to Jericho and he's about to engage in this war that, by the way, that God had endorsed and God had sent him to do. So he was about to go to Jericho and um, he and the Israelites are about to go and he, uh, the night before, he runs into the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army. And he's a little bit scared because, you know, he's encountering an angel. And as the angel comes and he's standing there with this really mighty sword and he sees him and he's about to go to battle and he says, oh, 
Are you for us or are you for them? Are you on our side or are you on their side? He's talking about Jericho. And the commander of the Lord's army just stands there and says, no. (laughs) He says, no. He says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. I think that's so interesting because the commander of the Lord's army is actually there standing on that dirt to engage in the earthly issues of Jericho versus Israel. But his identity is not in either. He says, no, I am a commander of the Lord's army. I am here to help you. When our identity is in the everlasting kingdom, that should make us more secure and that should move us away from the sting of identity politics, of having to win, of having to have our side win because that's my identity. It should remove us from that. It should give us a great sense of security. In Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, Paul reminds us of who we are as we live in this world. In Colossians 3, Paul says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. Your identity is you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Not only does he say your identity is kept safeguarded, but he says your glory is coming. You don't need to seek your glory and your victory right here now. It's coming. Your life is hidden away with Christ. My brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that Jesus says I have made you my child. Don't demote, lower your identity to just being a Republican and just being a Democrat. You are a child of God. Do not lose that amazing identity that you have in the Lord. And then engage. The last thing, the last way that the kingdom of God should impact us as we um, enter into this election season is that it should make us, it should affect the way that we have conversations with one another. Not only should it affect our heart, not only should should it secure our identity, but it should change the way that we have conversations with other people, especially with those people that we disagree with. It's no secret that um, incivility is the new norm of public discourse in America. That incivility and unkindness has become normal. And uh, public discourse has become more biting than ever. But brothers and sisters, we cannot be a part of that. You know, in our conversations, we, we cannot be part of that as um, kingdom citizens. Uh, Daniel Bennett, um, I'm going to read to you a quote from Daniel Bennett. He, he said in an article once, he said, Our country's extreme political climate might tempt us to adopt its hostile rhetoric and dehumanizing tones, rendering us indistinguishable from this world. That can't happen to us. Or we might be tempted to abandon political engagement altogether, fatigued by the rancor and fed up by the partisan stalemate. That can't happen to us either. Neither option will suffice for those who are called to be in the world for the sake of the kingdom. The way that we engage has to be different than how everyone else engages. 
And I want to remind you of something that Jesus said. He says, if salt loses its saltiness, then what good is it? If you do public, public uh, political discourse like everybody else, then what difference does it make that I have put you in the world? In our conversations, brothers and sisters, there must be a holiness to it, a difference to it, something distinctive about it. And we can speak with grace and humility in all of our public discourse when it comes to politics. And it really comes down to this. We should be marked by humility. Humility. And you know why? This is why. Because we believe in a king who has an everlasting kingdom who will bring the final solution to all the problems that we see here on earth. And that means that we know that all of our solutions that we engage in are mere approximations of what he will bring as the final solution. Let me say that again. We have a king of kings who is going to bring the final solution to all of the issues that we face in this world. And so we know that any solution that we put forth, whether we agree or disagree, any solutions that we put forth are mere approximations to what he's going to finally bring. And since we're dealing with approximations, we should be humble. We are not putting into, uh, into uh, politics policies that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us that we need to say, thus saith the Lord. We are dealing with approximations here on earth. That means that since we know that no solution is a final solution, we should be willing to listen. We should be willing to talk to each other and to understand that I'm not talking about Jesus solutions. I'm talking about approximate solutions. So I'd love to listen to what you have to say. We should be humble, knowing that we're dealing with the solutions of a passing kingdom. And we know and we have this deep security that the final solutions are coming in the everlasting kingdom. And so we should be people who talk to people with values from the everlasting kingdom, values like faith, hope, and love. We should always have those things peppered into our conversations. And I think that if this happens, I think that if the everlasting kingdoms of God affect the way that our hearts are settled in him, that our identities are settled in him, and our conversations are marked by these things, then I think that people will say, I really actually like talking to that Christian about politics. Instead of, I never talk about politics, I actually like talking to this person about politics. It's strange because everybody else is so opinionated and so explosive when it comes to talking about politics. But I like talking to that person because it's strange. I mean, I'm not sure whether they're a Republican or a Democrat. I can't really place them. But the strange thing is when I talk to this person about it, I don't feel attacked. And I don't feel stupid. And I don't feel defensive. Because she says things that are outside of the box and says things that I've never thought of before and brings in things that aren't in the current conversation. It's weird, but I like talking to her. She's one of the only safe people in my life that I could talk to about politics. You know why, brothers and sisters? Because she's a kingdom citizen. She's a kingdom citizen who has all conversations in faith, hope, and love. And the humility of knowing that the kingdoms of this world are passing and only Jesus Christ brings the everlasting kingdom. 
I know I've gone long, but I just want to say one more thing. Um, in Mark 12, Jesus is faced with an impossible question. And the impossible question that he's faced with is this political question, and the political question is, should we pay taxes to Caesar? It's an impossible question because if he says yes, then he's basically going against all of his Jewish people. If he says no, then he's putting his head on the chopping block because he's going against the Roman kingdom. But then he's, he comes up with a brilliant answer, and the brilliant answer that he comes up with is first, give me a coin, give me a denarius. And he says, whose image is on here? They say Caesar's image. And then he says this, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. The genius of that answer is in the word render. It's not give. The word render means to give exactly what they deserve. And so when he says render unto Caesar what he deserves, that's very unclear. What if I think that Caesar is a tyrant and he deserves a revolution? Render unto Caesar what's Caesar's. What if I support Caesar and I think that he's a great king because he protects us as a Jewish people? Then I want to give him taxes. What should I do? You render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. You give him what he deserves. But then the real point that he's making is, whose image is on you? And what does God deserve from you? You are made in his image. You have been saved and loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. He bled on a cross to save you and to make you his son and to make you his daughter. As you live here, what do you owe to God? Do we not owe to God our heart, our identity, our grace and conversation? Don't we owe to him the hope of the everlasting kingdom and not to despair here on earth as November 3rd comes closer to us? Don't we owe to him our worship and our devotion? Render unto God what is God's. And as we come to this season, I just want to encourage you as I invite the worship team back up to come and close us. Um, set your hearts and minds on the things that are above. You don't have to despair like everybody else because the rock is coming uh, who will uh, bring victory. And so uh, let's all go to him in prayer. And I, I want to just speak to the fear and insecurity that may be inside of you, some of the anger that may be inside of you. And brothers and sisters, be still my soul. Be still my soul. The Lord is on your side. Be still and know that I am God. His kingdom uh, will have no end and his kingdom will be just. So let's set our hopes on him and let's set our faith on him. Let me give you a minute to pray before we respond with the song. kingdoms we give our heart to you pray help us so that our hearts are not set on things that are passing help our hearts to not be proud and be settled in things that are of this earth this earth is like chaff and will one day pass away 
Father, you have called us to be salt and light here. So, Father, as we seek to be salt and light, I pray, set our hearts upon the eternal kingdom of God. I pray, help us to be one of the safest, most encouraging, and humble people to talk to about politics. Because our hearts are not really set here. We desire to love and to encourage and to help and heal. But we have a kingdom that we're waiting on. And so, Father, change our hearts. I pray if there are brothers and sisters in our congregation who are scared, who are anxious, who are angry, who are impatient, Father, I pray today minister to their heart and remind them, be still and know that I am God. So, Father, our hope is set upon you, and so we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all respond to him with a song together.